0: This is an RNZ podcast.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I stick on the headphones, listen to hours and hours of audio and share all the best stuff I hear with you. Coming up today, we visit a remote island ecosystem with Offshore, a podcast from Hawaii. Brand new underwear,
3: brand new socks, brand new shorts, brand new shirts, brand new hats, brand new camera straps, anything soft. You have to get brand new, have it frozen for days.
2: Then don't just argue the next time you have a minor domestic disagreement. Refer the matter to certified fake internet judge and minor TV personality, John Hodgman.
4: Eric and Elena, please rise and raise your right hands. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God
2: or whatever? After that, classical music mysteries and case notes. Like what on earth happened to Haydn after his funeral? Who had taken the
5: famous composer's head? What could they have wanted with it?
2: And why leave the rest of his decaying body behind? Finally, how Silicon Valley's learning from Las Vegas as it tries to keep you tied to your smartphone.
6: You're not using your phone so much because you're lazy or because you're easily distractible. We are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure that that's the inevitable outcome.
2: And next time you hear something good, please do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at rnzpodcasthour. Only a select few visit the distant Hawaiian island group Papahanama Okaakea. It's a massive yet remote conservation area covering ten islands on almost one million square kilometres of the Pacific. Nathan and Alana Eagle recorded their visit there for the podcast offshore.
3: You want to be the first to spot it.
2: It's
7: not like the main Hawaiian islands where they have mountains. It's just domes of sand.
3: Before you even get there, the clouds will be like a greenish color, reflecting the color of the island. Then the waters surrounding them are this bright, brilliant blues, or almost like a really light color, like a super light blue. Very distinct from the, the deep blue.
7: One word people always use to describe Papahanaumokuakea is pristine. Like you hear it from all these different people oh, it's pristine waters, pristine land. And when you get up there, it's just, it's beautiful. And then the beaches are, like, covered in plastic. It's so sad.
8: You're listening to Offshore, stories from Hawaii. I'm Jessica Terrell. Head northwest of Honolulu, past the island of Kauai and then across nearly 800 miles of open ocean, and you'll reach the second largest wildlife refuge in the world. Papahānaumokuākea Marine National Monument covers 583,000 square miles of the Pacific. It's where life begins in the Kumulipo, the Hawaiian creation chant, and it's where spirits return after death. Today, Papahānaumokuākea's tiny islands and coral atolls are home to millions of seabirds and fish, endangered plants and animals, found nowhere else in the world. The protected marine sanctuary is larger than all of America's national parks combined. But while millions of visitors flock to America's national parks each year to marvel at the beauty of the Grand Canyon, or come face-to-face with herds of buffalo at Yellowstone, access to Papahanaumokuakea is restricted to a very select group of scientists, Native Hawaiians, and hardy volunteer workers. And so many people, even in Hawaii, don't know that this special place exists, don't know what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it smells like. What will be lost if rising seas wash away its low-lying islands, or politicians chip away at the laws protecting its borders? Civil Beat's environmental reporter, Nathan Eagle, and his wife, videographer, Alana Eagle, traveled to the Northwest Hawaiian Islands in 2017 with a group of scientists and volunteers working to restore natural wildlife habitats on these remote atolls. It was a trip that opened their eyes to the beauty and fragility of island life and changed their outlook on the world in unexpected ways. Journey there with them in this offshore
7: postcard from Papa
8: Akea.
7: Having grown up in Hawaii, it's beyond any of the islands you can get to. That's Alana.
8: Her dad used to be the manager of Hanauma Bay, a marine conservation area and famed snorkeling spot on Oahu.
7: You know, he always had this shirt that said Papa Hanamokuoka for years and years and years, and I was like, what is that? What is that? And then he taught me how to say it. And it was always something that I kind of knew about, but you didn't see very many pictures. It was just like something I had in my imagination.
3: Basically, no one gets to go unless you get the permit. And the permit process is incredibly hard.
7: And that's Nathan.
3: Usually it's only scientists that get to go or cultural practitioners, uh, Native Hawaiians that are going out there for that.
8: Nathan applied for a permit to travel to Papahanamoku Akea months before the trip.
3: I would got the application done. And then I heard nothing for a long time, followed up, heard nothing, followed up, heard nothing, followed up, heard nothing. And then all of a sudden it seemed like it just started happening all at once.
7: Oh my gosh, you're going to look amazing.
3: I haven't shopped for a sarong before, but I'm
8: down for It whatever. takes a lot of preparation Outside. to get ready for a trip to these remote and fragile islands.
3: So I guess two of these, one for Curie, one for Laysen. I like this one. It was really intense. Laysan and Curie Atolls are quarantine atolls, and that means brand-new underwear, brand-new socks, brand-new shorts, brand-new shirts, brand-new hats, brand-new camera straps, anything soft. You have to get brand-new, have it frozen for days, and then get placed in this five-gallon bucket, and then you have that bucket just put on the boat. It's set aside until literally minutes before You're going to set foot on those islands and you put on all your quarantine stuff. So they do not mess around at all with that stuff.
8: And the restrictions aren't limited to what goes on your body. You have to watch what you eat too.
3: You can't help but laugh when they're like, don't eat tomatoes the day before. You're like, okay. And like, why? And like, well, the seeds are kind of hardy and you'll basically. Um, crap them into curie or lay and we could have a tomato plant growing where we
8: shouldn't.
0: With non-native plants that get introduced, if they kind of go unchecked, they could just change the whole ecosystem.
8: That's Kate Toniolo, Monument Deputy Superintendent for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service.
7: You know, this is the protocol we found that works really, really well. Try and kill off any accidental hitchhikers that we have. We don't want to injure any of the wildlife. Have a
9: good one. Thank, Thank you. you.
7: We're totally going to look like tourists out on this island. And
8: that's really fun. Honolulu Harbor is the main seaport for the state of Hawaii. Large passenger ships dock alongside cargo and fishing boats, as well as the occasional research vessel.
7: We pulled up to the pier, and you get through a little gate. You have to tell them where you're going. We're going to the Kahana, which is the boat that's going to take us out there. We pictured one of those, like, beautiful white NOAA ships with, like, spinning weather meter detectors and, you know, a, a clean, almost cruise ship-looking thing. Then we look at the huge freight ship in front of us and it says Kana on it. And we're like, that's the boat? Oh, it's this gritty, rough, like, almost looks like an oil ship. I don't even, it's like a cargo boat. When we arrived, we were like, oh my gosh, okay, this is what we're going on.
3: We hopped on, we set sail as the sun was coming up, which was really cool. And then we realized it's begun. It's kind of like everything set in, I think, a little bit at that moment once we had set sail.
7: When we were pulling out of Honolulu Harbor, that's when it was like, okay, it's starting. Then all of a sudden it's just like open ocean.
3: Actually, you did? I got to yell "shark,"
1: ah.
7: and then I saw
3: the distinct hammerhead. And like, How big was one. it? Little.
7: 20 to 25 feet. Oh, shut up. shut up. Four or
3: five feet. Four or five feet.
7: Okay. <laughs>
8: In the Kumulipo, the Hawaiian creation chant, life begins in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. It's where ocean creatures, birds, and plants were first created. These tiny islands are very different from the main Hawaiian Islands. They're flat, no mountains, little fresh water. For generations of Hawaiians, this was not a place where man was meant to dwell. It was a land of the ancestors, of the gods.
3: That was their interpretation of protecting the place and and making sure that it was protected.
8: That's Brad Wong of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. And he sees a connection between how Hawaiians traditionally viewed these lands and their status as a protected marine monument today.
3: That's just the role that the place has in in today's society as well, because now it's the same kind of a thing. We protect it as much as we can um, in the way that we understand it.
8: It took four days at sea past the main Hawaiian islands, past tiny Nihoa, French Frigate Shoals, Gardner Pinnacles, and Maro Reef in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, before Nathan and Alana reached their first destination, Laysan Island.
7: As we're approaching Laysan, it's like really shallow and it's kind of like lagoon water. We got onto the little skiff and we pull in and the crew is waiting for us on the on the sand cuz they're like oh my god our our friends are coming they don't
3: get a lot of visitors
7: no so they're they're all waving as we're approaching and then there's like two people washing everyone's lunch dishes in the ocean so that's how like they washed all their dishes and so we like go and we pull up and then immediately we get like covered in flies
3: covered in flies they're fortunately not biting, but flies on Laysan are a huge deal. And people, they just get used to it. So you'll be talking to someone, one of the volunteers, and he'll have flies like crawling over his eyeballs and stuff. Like, <laughs> it's amazing how fast the human body can adapt.
8: And then there's the smell.
3: So it smells a lot like bird poop and dead birds, because they don't really tell you that there's an incredible amount of dead birds. I mean, we're talking some rough math. If just albatross, so we'll just do one species. About a million call Laysan home. Only 300,000 or so a year survive. So that's like 700,000 dead birds a year there. (laughs) And that's just one species. There's hundreds of thousands of shearwaters and all these other kinds of birds too that also die just naturally.
8: The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been working to restore the 1,000-acre island for more than 20 years. The island is home to several endangered species of birds and one of the world's rarest ducks, but it had been overrun in the past by invasive weeds, rats, and rabbits. But the conservation work is a lonely task, and workers left on the island for weeks or months at a time have to be very self-reliant.
7: These crews don't have access to any kind of medical facility or anything. They basically have to self-prescribe. Well, they do have like a number they can call that, like, reaches a doctor. They describe their symptoms, and the doctor can say, take this, take this, do this, whatever. But they have very limited resources. The sounds of sleeping on Laysan.
3: So we we slept in, on Laysan in, like, a camping tent that you would picture for, like, a three- or four-person family. And it is just the noisiest place you can imagine at night. And some of the birds, like the wedge tailed cheerwaters, sound like crying babies. So human like.
7: The sun goes down and then it's just loud. It is loud.
2: Some of our journey to the last wild place from the offshore podcast produced by Jessica Terrell and April Estrelon with field reporters Nathan and Alana Eagle. And that show's produced by Honolulu Civil Beat, a non-profit community-supported news organisation. Next time you have a domestic disagreement, don't just bicker and squabble about it. Have it properly decided for you by a well-known minor television personality and self-certified fake internet judge. That's the compelling appeal of Judge John Hodgman, a long-running show that involves the actor and writer John Hodgman adjudicating on real-life disputes that tend towards the minor and the mundane. So, how should you fold socks? How many birthday-related events are too many? And is it ever okay to leave the dinner table before meal completion if you happen to live with a particularly slow eater? The props and the pomp of courtroom procedure, the sound of the gavel, the production of affidavits and evidence, the citing of precedents, and the pronouncements of regular court bailiff Jesse Thorne are nicely undercut by the trivial nature of the disagreements themselves. And the judge's quick-witted remarks and his off-the-cuff logic... Sometimes, just sometimes, makes you feel that you might have heard something approaching justice. Certainly the idea and the formats proved to be a winner, with 422 episodes and counting spread over nearly nine years. And the judge also settles disputes in a weekly column in the New York Times magazine. Exhibit 1, Eric. He does something in blockchain. Nobody quite seems to understand what. And he likes sharing online real estate listings with his girlfriend, Elena.
4: Welcome to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. This week, open house arrest. Eric files suit against his fiance, Elena. Elena has banned him from sharing online real estate listings with her. Eric would like the ban to be lifted so they can be prepared to buy a house when the right one comes along. Who's right? Who's wrong? Only one man can decide. Please rise as Judge John Hodgman enters the courtroom and presents an obscure cultural reference.
10: Look at this pristinely maintained and remodeled contemporary set back from the road on five and a half wooded acres. The open concept kitchen dining area has been completely refinished. The dining area opens onto a large wraparound deck for grilling and entertaining with a view of the hills. The dramatic master bedroom was recently added to the upper level and features six skylights with views of the treetops and stars. Pella windows, new on-demand propane water heater, and a Nest thermostat have improved the efficiency of this home. Come check out this gem. And meanwhile, Bailiff Jesse Thorne, please swear them
4: in. Eric and Elena, please rise and raise your right hands. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God or whatever? Yes,
1: I do. Yes,
4: I do. Do you swear to abide by Judge John Hodgman's ruling, despite the fact that he lives deep under the sea?
1: Yes.
10: Uh, Yes. Judge Hodgman, you may proceed. Eric and Elena, you may be seated. For an immediate summary judgment in one of yours favors, can either of you name the piece of culture—culture? Piece of advertising— that I referenced as I entered this very courtroom. Uh, Elena, why don't you go first?
1: I think it was from House Hunters International, season 121, episode 11, Abracing Edinburgh, Scotland, featuring Josie and Brett.
10: House Hunters International, 121, episode 11. You sure you want to say 11? Nope, too late, we put it in, 11. (laughs) 11 it is. Eric, what's your guess?
1: I think it's uh, a line from the movie Beetlejuice.
10: Line from the movie Beetlejuice. And you said episode 11, right? Not 12, Elena?
1: Yep, episode 11.
10: Oh, well, too bad, because all guesses are wrong. <laughs> First of all, that Beetlejuice one, you were just fobbing that out. That was, you were fobbing it off. No, that's not it either. You were fobbing it in. Anyway, it was a lazy guess, Eric. And you have lost points as a result. <laughs> Yes. Oh, did you know that I keep points? Uh, for nine years, I've been keeping points on everyone. Eventually, I'll give you the spreadsheet of all the points that all the litigants have gotten and had retracted for the final Judge John Hodgman Cup. <laughs> <laughs> Is this like NASCAR? No, it's like the Hogwarts <laughs> Cup. Oh, okay. Every litigant gets a certain amount of points uh, that I'm keeping secretly on my list. And we're going to bring in the top points earners for a final try- Judgy cup later
4: on. By the way, John, congratulations on finding a sporting competition I'm less familiar with than NASCAR. <laughs>
10: really? You don't follow Quidditch?
4: <laughs> no. <laughs> I guess I'm not a 19-year-old at a Northeastern liberal arts college. Is that who does Quidditch? No, everyone in the world does Quidditch. Okay. Quidditch is the wizarding sport from the Harry Potters. Yeah, but I don't 19-year-olds at, like, Bennington do that? In real life, with brooms or something? Maybe ten years ago. Okay. Now it's a now now all kinds of
10: adult human beings who have children of their own pretend to fly brooms. Eric and Elena, you ever do uh, real life Quidditch?
1: I have seen it at my small liberal arts college in Northeast.
10: Oh, really? where you Where'd you go to college,
1: <laughs> yeah. and how old were you at the time? Juniata College. I don't know that one at all. Yeah, it's not a real college. She made it up. <laughs> It's also not in the Northeast. Where is it? Central Pennsylvania.
10: Okay. You could ballpark it for me, your age. Are you in your 20s, your 30s? In my 20s. In your 20s. All right. Wait a minute. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Eric, your lazy guess was wrong. Elena, your guess was not lazy. In fact, it showed great thought and I dare say heart. Because you know, (laughs) I'm a fan of House Hunters International. So much better than House Hunters. Because House Hunters, those are just people who want to buy a house. House Hunters International are people who are looking to move countries and there's always a subtext that they're running from something. Like, why why do you need to move to Panama all of a sudden? And I was trying to fake you out by making you think that maybe you were just one episode off a correct guess,
2: but you were wrong, 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 wrong. Then the learned judge carefully weighs up the evidence the couples produced. Eric, you sent in a picture of
10: your uh, task lists from your smartphone. You sent in a picture of, a, of an affidavit from Danny, your older brother, saying, I have recommended to Eric that it is important to pay attention to the real estate market. And you sent in an affidavit from Josie, a close friend. She is saying something else in your support. And then you sent in a picture just now, last minute edition. A picture from your, uh, I don't know whether this is a Slack or some other messaging service. You have a hashtag, which is Eric Loves Zillow, which is a two-bedroom, two-bath on the beach for 675 presumably $1,000, with Elena writing back, wow, dream come true. This one time I approve of you sending me the listing. So, okay, I got the affidavits from your friends saying you're a good person. Uh, what are you trying to show me with this evidence? What are you showing me with this
1: garden? I think that sharing links is part of how modern couples have discussions and that sharing ideas back and forth and places you want to travel, areas of the world you might want to live in, hiking shoes, gas grills, portable gas grills, these are just part of the normal conversation that, that couples living in Boulder have. Okay. And I think it's unreasonable to knock out one particular type of link.
10: I got you. In other words, it's your, your point is, by showing me this picture of this garden that Elena sent you, you're, you're both in it saying she's sending me pictures of gardens and therefore I should send her pictures of houses because that's how modern couples talk to each other. They turn each other's phones into their respective Pinterest boards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll accept that. Is that what this list of lists is? Shared grocery lists, shared ski packing, camping gear, movies. These are all links to things that you want to share together at some point or another.
1: Yeah, I think we're, or especially me, I'm a very organized person. I like to have all my plans in place and be really prepared. Yeah. And looking at house listings is how I do that so that we can be sort of having an ongoing conversation about what type of house we want to live in, what type of house we can afford, what part of the country or the world we might want to live in. Right, because you need to be
10: able to make a move at any time. You never know. You never know. Right, I got you. That's why you have a first aid kit list here. Here's the list I'm curious about. (laughs) Second to the bottom, 16 (laughs) items, next protest? What's happening there?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, Elena and I, when we first started dating, went to Washington, D.C. to have a protest uh, about three years ago. Okay. And... While we are there, we are thinking, you know, we could really use those 16 items, but we don't have them. So we made a list. So the next time we go to a protest, we can make sure to bring all the things that we want to have.
10: Well, that's a little bit more reassuring than the the 16 next protests you have planned. (laughs) What was your protest of? Please do not tell me that you would like to retain Confederate monuments anywhere in the world.
1: Uh, We are walking with the the million other people after uh, President Trump's inauguration.
10: The Women's March. Yes. It's not the Million Other People March.
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just called the Women's March. I
1: kind of forgot the name.
7: Okay.
10: All right. You you
4: should work on that for sure. That was a, a big part of it. Okay, cool. So number one on the list of 16 things you should have brought was the name. <laughs>
9: <laughs>
4: what are some of the things on the um, on the next protest list?
1: A clear backpack. Warm oh. shoes. Wait, stop. Lunch. Okay. Hold on. Clear backpack. How come? Because the people at the march, the security people at the march said, if you had a clear backpack, you could bring more stuff with you, but otherwise you were limited in the size of your backpack.
10: Love it. Okay. Keep going.
1: So we said we should bring food because we ended up being there substantially longer than we had anticipated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Better signs. Yeah. When we saw Instagram the day after, we said, wow, we could have been much more clever with our signage. Sure. A way to hold a sign uh, other than your hands. Mm -hmm. A selfie stick. Uh, coordinated color clothing because there's so many people it's quite easy to lose track of your friends one clever group had a rope that they used to keep their group together which we thought was very sure. clever like toddlers <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah like like,
10: a, like
1: Similar idea. a rope
10: line of toddlers in park slope walking from their preschool to the train station or whatever adorable that's the idea i'm giving you know what eric i'm giving you some points
2: points very organized Some of episode 416 of the Judge John Hodgman podcast called Open House Arrest, produced by Jennifer Marmer for maximum fun. You're listening to the podcast hour on RNZ National. (laughs) Black magic, theft, grave digging, and gruesome crimes. Some of our most famous classical composers led very dark and interesting lives. It certainly wasn't all powdered wigs and harpsichord recitals for genteel society. Case Notes is an award-winning true crime podcast finding the compelling stories in classical music's past, like whatever happened to Haydn's head after his funeral.
5: 1820. There's a wintry chill in the air, though it's only October. In a graveyard just outside the city centre, a small crowd shivers. They're gathered around the grave of the famous composer, Joseph Haydn. He died ten years earlier, but only now his employer, Prince Esterhazy, wants to give him the funeral he deserves. A grand marble tomb has been prepared nearby. All they need now is the body of the great composer. Gravediggers bring the coffin to the surface while the crowd watches and leans in. The wooden lid opens. The prince peers inside. But something isn't right. Haydn's body is in the grave but it's just his body the head is missing and in its place is an empty powdered wig suddenly the scene is abuzz with activity and questions who had taken the famous composer's head what could they have wanted with it and why leave the rest of his decaying body behind This is Case Notes, a podcast investigating music's darkest mysteries from Classic FM. I'm Tim Leoro. In this episode, the gruesome story of Haydn's missing head. The late 1700s were a time of great change in Europe. The Napoleonic Wars are on the horizon, and now a revolution of a different kind is taking place. It's known as the Age of Enlightenment. New discoveries in science and the arts are changing how people view the world. And thinkers like Voltaire and Rousseau are revolutionising philosophy. Authors, poets and artists sit in coffee houses across the continent debating new ideas, and Austria is no exception. It's the capital of the vast Habsburg Empire, a realm that stretches from the modern countries of Poland to the Ukraine. It's a world centre for philosophy, science and music. And composer Joseph Haydn is one of the most celebrated musicians of the time. Like the philosophers and thinkers that surrounded him, Haydn was asking fundamental questions about life. But he was asking them, through his music.
11: Well, I think the creation particularly is a a remarkable work.
5: Catherine Bott is a singer and classic FM presenter.
11: Everyone was a creationist then, so the idea that God created the world in seven days was completely matter-of-fact to Haydn's generation. And I do think that in the face of the extraordinary achievement of creating the heaven and the earth and the animals and the insects and plant life and everything, even up to Adam and Eve... Why shouldn't we be absolutely overawed and raise a sort of innocent hymn of praise? I think it's it's very affecting that. But there are also witty touches. There are descriptions of the of the beasts being being created, the buzzing of the bees and the worm. And nothing more so than the very beginning, which is chaos. Before God said, Let there be light. And there was. You get this representation of chaos in the orchestra, which is all over the place. It's a mess. It's meant to be a mess. Genius of Haydn. It's all disharmonious and, and quite scary. And you're, you imagine the void. beginning and God said Let there be light and there was and the chorus comes in major chord timpani rumble thump light <laughs> and it still really makes the shivers go down your spine even today and you imagine the effect it must have had at the end of the 18th century.
5: Haydn is so celebrated that he's been snapped up by the powerful Prince Nikolaus Esterhazy.
11: He was quite a catch,
5: you know. I've got Joseph Haydn as my court composer.
11: Who have you got? Oh. oh, well, I'm sure he's very nice.
5: <laughs> and Obviously, people recognised a certain extraordinary talent. Here's Professor Eric Levy. I'm lecturer of music... Uh, oh, Professor Eric Levy, I suppose that's enough, isn't it? He uh, became, first of all, a vice kapellmeister to the court of the Esterházy, which was um, a very rich Hungarian noble family who lived way away from uh, from Vienna. He had this marvellous orchestra, he attracted some uh, uh, amazing musicians. Musicians travelled freely, so there were Italians and Germans uh, and French people in, in, in the court, and he could secure with the, with the right sort of tempting uh, employment prospects the best players. And he was given the opportunity, really, to experiment with, with, with the orchestra in a way that many other composers at that time didn't have that opportunity. While Haydn's working at the Esterhazy court he meets Joseph Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum has the rather grand title of Controller of Stabling Accounts. He holds the purse strings in the Esterhazy household. The pair become friends, and through Haydn, Rosenbaum meets the beautiful singer Teresa Gassman and falls instantly in love. She's one of the best sopranos of the day. In fact, she's the soprano who sang the role of the Queen of the Night in an early performance of Mozart's The Magic Flute. They want to marry, but for that, Rosenbaum needs the Prince's blessing. There are obstacles at every turn. Teresa's mother hates the idea of her daughter marrying him, and she tries everything to block the marriage. Rosenbaum records it all in his diary. A most unpleasant day, of which there are so
2: many in the course of my life. I asked him on his way down the stairs for his permission to marry. The prince was gracious, but could not quite make up his mind to permit it, and instructed me to submit my request in writing. I will be reassured if this disagreeable business does not have evil consequences for me in the future.
5: Haydn feels sorry for his friend. He offers to speak to the prince, to argue Rosenbaum's case. Saturday, I worked with
2: great diligence from 6am until 2 in the afternoon. Later, I went to see Theresa and learned that they had been at Haydn's. He had said many nice things about me. I also visited Haydn and talked to his wife until he came home. I told him at great length about my love for Theresa and my desire to marry her and implored him to help in any way he can, he faithfully promised to do so.
5: Despite Haydn's efforts, Rosenbaum's worst fears are realised.
2: The prince refuses to give him his blessing. Part of Haydn's missing head from Case Notes, hosted by Tim Learow for Classic FM. And Case Notes recently won the award for Best True Crime Podcast at the British Podcast Awards. Instant messages, photos, entertainment, maps, games, activity trackers, calendars, emails, social media. Even if you worry about using your smartphone too much, the idea of simply unplugging and ditching it altogether just doesn't feel like an option for most of us. So how can we strike the right balance between our tech usage and important stuff like interacting with our family and friends and the world around us when we're not looking at a screen? It's a topic the Outside podcast gets into in a new four-part series called The Nature Cure. In the first episode, Outside's editor Christopher Kai speaks to Cal Newport, who wants us to reimagine our relationship with technology. It's a lifestyle Newport calls digital minimalism, and it's the opposite of the impulse that makes us want to sign up to all those shiny new apps and services in the hope that one day we might actually get some value from them.
6: Well, there's a shift happening now as people are starting to move away from maximalism, which I think tells us something about its source, which in my opinion is is just the exuberance that comes along with any technological innovation. So smartphones were exciting. I mean, this is a really interesting piece of technology. You know, Web 2.0, that was exciting, right? This is a new piece of technology. And whenever we have new technology enter the scene, there tends to be a period of exuberance about 10 years long or so, in which people just... Embrace lots of different things. It's a period of experimentation. Let me try this out. This seems valuable. What about this? It says our culture tries to renegotiate its relationship with its tools. And I think it's telling that we're about 10 years out from the introduction of the iPhone. So as we hit this sort of magic 10 year period, the exuberance begins to wear off and we begin to become more wary about the consequences of that maximalism. So I don't think there was anything particularly negative or surprising about the fact that we all went through this period of maximalism i think that's sort of a healthy response to trying to figure out what should we do with these new technologies in our culture but i also think it's equally healthy that as time wears on we move past that sort of initial naive response and start thinking more critically because people are beginning to see the trade-off like wait a second you know all these things which are sort of vaguely promising to maybe be important in high tech are very concretely keeping me away from things that I know for sure are very important for my career, very important for my life. And so
9: in Newport's view, smartphones themselves aren't to blame. Last January, he wrote an op-ed in the New York 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 Times titled, Steve Jobs never wanted us to use our iPhones like this. By like this, he means like the constant companion model. You know, the idea that we need to take our phone on every trail run or check it as soon as we wake up. Okay. But how does he know what Steve Jobs intended?
6: Well, I mean, I went back and talked to his head designer. So so that's one way. You can also go back and watch the keynote address or just uh, rack your memory for what your digital life was like back in, let's say, 2007 or 2008. And all these strands of evidence point towards the same conclusion, which was the iPhone as originally promoted was a much more minimalist tool. I mean, Steve Jobs saw this as a way to be a better phone than had ever existed before, to be a better music player than had better existed before, and to combine them into one object because it seemed to him quite inelegant that you would carry, let's say, an iPod next to your Nokia, both in the same pocket. Uh, So it was really a tool that was meant to do a couple things that we already did and already love, but do those things better. There was no app store. There were apps on it, but these weren't things meant to dominate your time. It was like a calculator which is useful. Or maps. We already use maps. This is a better map experience. And this was classic Steve Jobs. Figure out what's important to people. Make the experience even better. Nothing about that implied that you should look at your phone all the time and people didn't look at their phone all the time and it wasn't something that was in the air. That actually came later, even though we forgot that that's not the way it used to be.
9: At some point, if you want to blame somebody, somebody media, for your phone media, addiction, media, Newport Apple's says, behind. don't blame Apple. Blame social media. Model. Well, social media and capitalism. As Newport points out, it wasn't until big companies like Facebook and Twitter began approaching their massive IPOs, that they also began a massive psychological experiment, making their services more enticing on mobile devices. So
6: core to this shift from user acquisition to IPO mode was figuring out how can we get people to massively increase their engagement with our services. And what they figured out once they started looking at this problem seriously is that we need to shift all of our attention to mobile. We need to get these things onto the phone. And we got to get people to keep checking it on their phone, which I want to remind us was something that was very unusual in the context of social media in an earlier age. But the great shift that they did, and this was a brilliant business move, is that they transformed the social media experience so that it was no longer about you post things, your friends post things and you read each other's posts, they shifted it from that to there is a constant incoming stream of social approval indicators, right? This is where we got the like button, this is where we got photo auto tags, this is where we got favorites in Instagram, retweets and Twitter, that now every time you tap the app, there's going to be some collection of indicators that other people are thinking about you. And sometimes when you click on the app, there'll be a lot, hey, people are really happy and thinking about you a lot. Sometimes there'll be very little, so it's very intermittent which hijacks our dopamine system and makes it almost impossible not to keep checking. And that experience completely transformed us from, Oh, I go to this website sometimes to see, you know, what my friends are up to into I have to check this thing all the time, because at any moment there might be new social approval indicators waiting for me. And this was incredibly massively profitable for these companies. It made them incredibly massively profitable, but the side effect was it completely changed our relationships from our phone. They went from being these Steve jobs style tools That we occasionally put the work for some very specific uses, like I want to listen to a song or look up directions, and made them into constant companions that we check all the time, like air
9: traffic controllers. Newport wasn't the first to report on this. A few years ago, a gifted former Google engineer named Tristam Harris made headlines as a Silicon Valley whistleblower. At Stanford, Harris had trained in the university's renowned persuasive technology lab, essentially learning the latest methods for using technology to influence human behavior. When his own startup was acquired by Google, he went to work for the company and began to see how they and others were using psychology to capture a users' attention. And he didn't like it. He wrote a Jerry Maguire-style manifesto that was even circulated around the offices. But when company leaders largely sidelined him, he left Google and started going public with his concerns. He made his biggest splash on 60 Minutes
6: I guess Anderson Cooper was the host. Anderson Cooper uh, pulled out his smartphone and said, so are you saying this is like a slot machine in my pocket? And Tristan said, yes, that's exactly right. This
1: thing is a slot machine. How is that a slot machine? Well, every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what did I get? This is one way to um, hijack people's minds and create a habit to form a habit.
6: What you do is he had seen it from the other side. He knew that there's even research that made its way to Silicon Valley from Las Vegas, where they had found out the optimal reinforcement schedules for electronic slot machines. So that research had made its way to the social media companies in, in uh, Silicon Valley where they're trying to figure out this reinforcement model. And so uh, he famously called it a slot machine and confirmed it was a slot machine in your pocket and made it clear that that, that metaphor is actually somewhat literal, that <laughs> it is designed in some sense to be a slot machine in your pocket. So he was really one of the first whistleblowers to come out of Silicon Valley and say, you're not using your phone so much because you're lazy or because you're easily distractible. We are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure that that's the inevitable outcome.
9: And is there anyone at any of the particular social media sites that push back against this and say, oh, that's not what we're doing? Or what's the, what's the counter argument that they make about the value of their platforms um, despite these issues?
6: They don't like to talk about this issue. Which is, which is interesting. I've been noticing, I've become an expert in social media PR strategy. And what I can tell, especially in Facebook's case, what they've decided is they really don't want to play in the playground of addiction, compulsive use, overuse, the idea that people are on Facebook so much that it's, it's keeping them away from things in their life that's, that's more valuable, more important, because that's a place where they can't really improve things. The more you use it, the more money they make. Right? So that's that's a dangerous territory for them to argue. So what they've done, I think, some, very effectively, and the, and the national media has definitely followed their lead here, is they've tried to keep the focus on other issues with social media that they can address without hitting the bottom line of the more minutes, the better. So this is why you see Mark Zuckerberg, for example, talk a lot about data privacy, end-to-end encryption, uh, data portability, or you see a lot of talk now about, let's say, content, misinformation, the definition of hate speech, what's censorship, what's not censorship, right? These type of topics, they're willing to engage in them because, you know, they can make moves, they can, they can try to make those better, they can have fixes, they can discuss them, and none of it gets to the bottom line. But when I'm on the road talking to real people, you know, why are you, why are you uneasy about social media? No one ever says because Cambridge Analytica, No one ever says, because I think the data portability standards of Facebook or subpar, they say, because I'm looking at this when I'm with my kids and I know I shouldn't and I can't help myself
2: some of the outside podcast hosted by Peter Frick Wright and produced by Michael Roberts and Robbie Carver. And that's from an episode called The Radically Simple Digital Diet We All Need, featuring an interview with digital minimalist Cal Newport. You can find links on where to listen to more and subscribe at rnz.co.nz podcast hour now. Or you can find the outside podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's about it from us for now, as well as the outside podcast. This week, we've been listening to Offshore, Judge John Hodgman and Case Notes. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If you're enjoying the show and it's helping you find new stuff to listen to, then please tell other people about us, maybe mention it to a friend or a family member. And do please rate and review us on Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast from. Not only does this help other people find us, but it also lets me know if I'm on the right track with the number of clips. Do you want some fewer stories, longer interviews? Just let me know about it. And I'm also really interested in finding out how people want me to podcast and publish stuff online. Other moment, I might release the whole show in one chunk and also in shorter slices of individual shows too. But if this is just a pain and it's easier to just get everything in one program, you don't have to fiddle around with and curate, just say the word and it should be done. Thank you.
0: Botox Cosmetic, Auto botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.